Chapter Ten of *The Descent of Man* and other stories by Edith Wharton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten: A Venetian Night's Entertainment. This is the story that, in the dining room of the old Beacon Street house, now the Aldebaran Club, Judge Antony Bracknell of the famous East India firm of Bracknell and Salisbury, when the ladies had withdrawn to the oval parlour and Maria's harp was throwing its gauzy web of sound across the common used to relate to his grandsons about the year that bonaparte marched upon moscow him venice said the lascar with the big earrings and tony bracknell leaning on the high gunwale of his father's east indiaman the hepzibah b saw far off across the morning sea a faint vision of towers and domes dissolved in golden air it was a rare february day of the year seventeen sixty and a young tony newly of age and bound on the grand tour aboard the crack merchantman of old bracknell's fleet felt his heart leap up as the distant city trembled into shape venice the name since childhood had been a magician's wand to him in the hall of the old bracknell house at salem there hung a series of yellowing prints which uncle richard salisbury had brought home from one of his long voyages views of heathen mosques and palaces of the grand turk seraglio of st peter's church in rome and in a corner the corner nearest the rack where the old flintlocks hung a busy merry populous scene entitled st mark's square in venice this picture from the first had singularly taken little tony's fancy his unformulated criticism on the others was that they lacked action true in the view of st peter's an experienced-looking gentleman in a full-bottomed wig was pointing out the fairly obvious monument to a bashful companion who had presumably not ventured to raise his eyes to it while at the doors of the seraglio a group of turbaned infidels observed with less hesitancy the approach of a veiled lady on a camel but in venice so many things were happening at once more tony was sure than had ever happened in boston in a twelvemonth or in salem in a long lifetime for here by their garb were people of every nation on earth chinamen turks spaniards and many more mixed with a party-coloured throng of gentry lackeys chapmen hucksters and tall personages in parsons gowns who stalked through the crowd with an air of mastery a string of parasites at their heels and all these people seemed to be diverting themselves hugely chaffering with the hucksters watching the antics of trained dogs and monkeys distributing doles to maimed beggars or having their pockets picked by slippery-looking fellows in black the whole with such an air of ease and good-humour that one felt the cut-purses to be as much a part of the show as the tumbling acrobats and animals as tony advanced in years and experience this childish mumming lost its magic but not so the early imaginings it had excited for the old picture had been but the springboard of fancy the first step of a cloud ladder leading to a land of dreams with these dreams the name of venice remained associated and all that observation or report subsequently brought him concerning the place seemed on a sober warranty of fact to confirm its claim to stand midway between reality and illusion there was for instance a slender venice glass gold-powdered as with lily-pollen or the dust of sunbeams that standing in the corner cabinet betwixt two lowestoft caddies seemed among its lifeless neighbours to palpitate like an impaled butterfly there was farther 
a gold chain of his mother's, spun of that same sun-pollen, so thread-like, impalpable, that it slipped through the fingers like light, yet so strong that it carried a heavy pendant which seemed held in the air as if by magic. Magic! That was the word which the thought of Venice evoked. It was the kind of place, Tony felt, in which things elsewhere impossible might naturally happen, in which two and two might make five, a paradox elope with a syllogism, and a conclusion give the lie to its own premise. Was there ever a young heart that did not, once and again, long to get away into such a world as that? Tony, at least, had felt the longing from the first hour when the axioms in his horn-book had brought home to him his heavy responsibilities as a Christian and a sinner. And now here was his wish taking shape before him, as the distant haze of gold shaped itself into towers and domes across the morning sea. The Reverend Ozias Mounts, Tony's governor and bear-leader, was just putting a hand to the third clause of the fourth part of a sermon on free-will and predestination, as the Hepzibah B's anchor rattled overboard. Tony, in his haste to be ashore, would have made one plunge with the anchor, but the Reverend Ozias, on being roused from his lucubrations, earnestly protested against leaving his argument in suspense. What was the trifle of an arrival at some papistical foreign city, where the very churches wore turbans like so many Muslim idolaters, to the important fact of Mr. Mounce's summing up his conclusions before the muse of theology took flight? He should be happy, he said, if the tide served, to visit Venice with Mr. Bracknell the next morning. The next morning, ha! Tony murmured a submissive, yes, sir, winked at the subjugated captain, buckled on his sword, pressed his hat down with a flourish, and before the Reverend Ozias had arrived at his next deduction, was skimming merrily shoreward in the Hepzibah's gig. A moment more, and he was in the thick of it. Here was the very world of the old print, only suffused with sunlight and colour, and bubbling with merry noises. What a scene it was! A square enclosed in fantastic painted buildings, and peopled with a throng as fantastic, a bawling, laughing, jostling, sweating mob, party-coloured, party-speeched, crackling and sputtering under the hot sun like a dish of fritters over a kitchen fire. Tony, agape, shouldered his way through the press, aware at once that, spite of the tumult, the shrillness, the gesticulation, there was no undercurrent of clownishness, no tendency to horseplay, as in such crowds on market-day at home, but a kind of facetious suavity which seemed to include everybody in the circumference of one huge joke. In such an air the sense of strangeness soon wore off, and Tony was beginning to feel himself vastly at home, when a lift of the tide bore him against a droll-looking bell-ringing fellow, who carried above his head a tall metal tree hung with sherbet-glasses. The encounter set the glasses spinning, and three or four spun off and clattered to the stones. The sherbet-seller called on all the saints, and Tony, clapping a lordly hand to his pocket, tossed him a ducat by mistake for a sequin. The fellow's eyes shot out of their orbits, and just then a personable-looking young man who had observed the transaction stepped up to Tony and said pleasantly, in English, "'I perceive, sir, that you are not familiar with our currency.' "'Does he want more?' says Tony, very lordly, whereat the other laughed and replied, you have given him enough to retire from his business and open a gaming-house over the arcade. 
Tony joined in the laugh, and this incident bridging the preliminaries, the two young men were presently hobnobbing over a glass of canary in front of one of the coffee-houses about the square. Tony counted himself lucky to have run across an English-speaking companion who was good-natured enough to give him a clue to the labyrinth, and when he had paid for the canary, in the coin his friend selected, they set out again to view the town. The Italian gentleman, who called himself Count Rialto, appeared to have a very numerous acquaintance, and was able to point out to Tony all the chief dignitaries of the state, the men of ton and ladies of fashion, as well as a number of other characters of a kind not openly mentioned in taking a census of Salem. Tony, who was not averse from reading when nothing better offered, had perused The Merchant of Venice and Mr. Otway's fine tragedy. But though these pieces had given him a notion that the social usages of Venice differed from those at home, he was unprepared for the surprising appearance and manners of the great people his friend named to him. The gravest senators of the Republic went in prodigious striped trousers, short cloaks, and feathered hats. One nobleman wore a ruff and a doctor's gown, another a black velvet tunic slashed with rose-colour, while the president of the dreaded Council of Ten was a terrible strutting fellow, with a rapier-like nose, a buff-leather jerkin, and a trailing scarlet cloak that the crowd was careful not to step on. It was all vastly diverting, and Tony would gladly have gone on for ever, but he had given his word to the captain to be at the landing-place at sunset, and here was dusk already creeping over the skies. Tony was a man of honour and having pressed on the count a handsome damascene dagger selected from one of the goldsmith's shops in a narrow street lined with such wares, he insisted on turning his face towards the Hepzibah's gig. The count yielded reluctantly, but as they came out again on the square they were caught in a great throng pouring toward the doors of the cathedral. "'They go to benediction,' said the Count. "'A beautiful sight, with many lights and flowers. It is a pity you cannot take a peep at it.' Tony thought so, too, and in another minute a legless beggar had pulled back the leathern flap of the cathedral door, and they stood in a haze of gold and perfume that seemed to rise and fall on the mighty undulations of the organ. Here the press was as thick as without, and as Tony flattened himself against a pillar, he heard a pretty voice at his elbow. "'Oh, sir, oh, sir, your sword!' He turned at the sound of the broken English, and saw a girl who matched the voice, trying to disengage her dress from the tip of his scabbard. She wore one of the voluminous black hoods which the Venetian ladies affected, and under its projecting eaves her face spied out at him as sweet as a nesting bird. In the dusk their hands met over the scabbard, and as she freed herself a shred of her lace flounce clung to Tony's enchanted fingers. Looking after her, he saw she was on the arm of a pompous-looking grey beard in a long black gown and scarlet stockings, who, on perceiving the exchange of glances between the young people, drew the lady away with a threatening look. The Count met Tony's eye with a smile. "'One of our Venetian beauties,' said he, the lovely Polixena Cador. She is thought to have the finest eyes in Venice. She spoke English, stammered Tony. Oh, ah, uh, precisely. She learned the language at the court of St. James, where her father, the senator, was formerly accredited as ambassador. She played as an infant with the royal princes of England. And that was her father? Assuredly. 
young ladies of donna polixena's rank do not go abroad save with their parents or a duenna just then a soft hand slid into tony's his heart gave a foolish bound and he turned about half expecting to meet again the merry eyes under the hood but saw instead a slender brown boy in some kind of fanciful page's dress who thrust a folded paper between his fingers and vanished in the throng tony in a tingle glanced surreptitiously at the count who appeared absorbed in his prayers the crowd at the ringing of a bell had in fact been overswept by a sudden wave of devotion and tony seized the moment to step beneath a lighted shrine with his letter i am in dreadful trouble and implore your help polixena he read but hardly had he seized the sense of the words when a hand fell on his shoulder and a stern-looking man in a cocked hat and bearing a kind of rod or mace pronounced a few words in venetian tony with a start thrust the letter in his breast and tried to jerk himself free but the harder he jerked the tighter grew the other's grip and the count presently perceiving what had happened pushed his way through the crowd and whispered hastily to his companion for god's sake make no struggle this is serious keep quiet and do as i do tony was no chicken-heart he had something of a name for pugnacity among the lads of his own age at home and was not the man to stand in venice what he would have resented in salem but the devil of it was that this black fellow seemed to be pointing to the letter in his breast and this suspicion was confirmed by the count's agitated whisper this is one of the agents of the ten for god's sake no outcry he exchanged a word or two with the mace-bearer and again turned to tony you have been seen concealing a letter about your person and what of that says tony furiously gently gently my master a letter handed to you by the page of donna polixena cador a black business oh a very black business this cador is one of the most powerful nobles in venice i beseech you not a word sir let me think deliberate his hand on tony's shoulder he carried on a rapid dialogue with the potentate in the cocked hat i am sorry sir but our young ladies of rank are as jealously guarded as the grand turks wives and you must be answerable for this scandal the best i can do is to have you taken privately to the palazzo cador instead of being brought before the council i have pleaded your youth and inexperience tony winced at this and i think the business may still be arranged meanwhile the agent of the ten had yielded his place to a sharp-featured shabby-looking fellow in black dressed somewhat like a lawyer's clerk who laid a grimy hand on tony's arm and with many apologetic gestures steered him through the crowd to the doors of the church the count held him by the other arm and in this fashion they emerged on the square which now lay in darkness save for the many lights twinkling under the arcade and in the windows of the gaming-rooms above it tony by this time had regained voice enough to declare that he would go where they pleased but that he must first say a word to the mate of the hepzibah who had now been awaiting him some two hours or more at the landing-place the count repeated this to tony's custodian but the latter shook his head and rattled off a sharp denial impossible sir said the count i entreat you not to insist any resistance will tell against you in the end tony fell silent with a rapid eye he was measuring his chances of escape in wind and limb he was more than a mate for his captors and boyhood's ruses were not so far behind him but he felt himself equal to outwitting a dozen grown men 
but he had the sense to see that at a cry the crowd would close in on him space was what he wanted a clear ten yards and he would have laughed at doge and council but the throng was thick as glue and he walked on submissively keeping his eye alert for an opening suddenly the mob swerved aside after some new show tony's fist shot out at the black fellow's chest and before the latter could right himself the young new englander was showing a clean pair of heels to his escort on he sped cleaving the crowd like a flood-tide in gloucester bay diving under the first arch that caught his eye dashing down a lane to an unlit waterway and plunging across a narrow humpback bridge which landed him in a black pocket between walls but now his pursuers were at his back reinforced by the yelping mob the walls were too high to scale and for all his courage tony's breath came short as he paced the masonry cage in which ill-luck had landed him suddenly a gate opened in one of the walls and a slip of a servant wench looked out and beckoned him there was no time to weigh chances tony dashed through the gate his rescuer slammed and bolted it and the two stood in a narrow paved well between high houses section two the servant picked up a lantern and signed to tony to follow her they climbed a squalid stairway of stone felt their way along a corridor and entered a tall vaulted room feebly lit by an oil lamp hung from the painted ceiling tony discerned traces of former splendour in his surroundings but he had no time to examine them for a figure started up at his approach and in the dim light he recognised the girl who was the cause of all his troubles she sprang toward him with outstretched hands but as he advanced her face changed and she shrank back abashed this is a misunderstanding a dreadful misunderstanding she cried out in her pretty broken english oh how does it happen that you are here through no choice of my own madam i assure you retorted tony not overpleased by his reception but why how how did you make this unfortunate mistake why madam if you'll excuse my candour i think the mistake was yours mine in sending me a letter you a letter by a simpleton of a lad who must needs hand it to me under your father's very nose the girl broke in on him with a cry what it was you who received my letter she swept round on the little maid-servant and submerged her under a flood of venetian the latter volleyed back in the same jargon and as she did so tony's astonished eye detected in her the doubleted page who had handed him the letter in st mark's what he cried the lad was this girl in disguise polixena broke off with an irrepressible smile but her face clouded instantly and she returned to the charge this wicked careless girl she has ruined me she will be my undoing oh sir how could i make you understand the letter was not intended for you it was meant for the english ambassador an old friend of my mother's from whom i hoped to obtain assistance oh how can i ever excuse myself to you no excuses are needed madam said tony bowing though i am surprised i own that any one should mistake me for an ambassador here a wave of mirth again overran polixena's face oh sir you must pardon my poor girl's mistake she heard you speaking english and-and i had told her to hand the letter to the handsomest foreigner in the church tony bowed again more profoundly the english ambassador polixena added simply is a very handsome man 
i wish madam i were a better proxy she echoed his laugh and then clapped her hands together with a look of anguish fool that i am how can i jest at such a moment i am in dreadful trouble and now perhaps i have brought trouble on you also oh my father i hear my father coming she turned pale and leaned tremblingly upon the little servant footsteps and loud voices were in fact heard outside and a moment later the red-stockinged senator stalked into the room attended by half a dozen of the magnificos whom tony had seen abroad in the square at sight of him all clapped hands to their swords and burst into furious outcries and though their jargon was unintelligible to the young man their tones and gestures made their meaning unpleasantly plain the senator with a start of anger first flung himself on the intruder then snatched back by his companions turned wrathfully on his daughter who at his feet with outstretched arms and streaming face pleaded her cause with all the eloquence of young distress meanwhile the other nobles gesticulated vehemently among themselves and one a truculent-looking personage in rough and spanish cape stalked apart keeping a jealous eye on tony the latter was at his wit's end how to comport himself for the lovely polixena's tears had quite drowned her few words of english and beyond guessing that the magnificos meant him a mischief he had no notion of what they would be at at this point luckily his friend count rialto suddenly broke in on the scene and was at once assailed by all the tongues in the room he pulled a long face at sight of tony but signed to the young man to be silent and addressed himself earnestly to the senator the latter at first would not draw breath to hear him but presently sobering he walked apart with the count and the two conversed together out of earshot my dear sir said the count at length turning to tony with a perturbed countenance it is as i feared and you are fallen into a great misfortune a great misfortune a great trap i call it shouted tony whose blood by this time was boiling but as he uttered the word the beautiful polixena cast such a stricken look on him that he blushed up to the forehead be careful said the count in a low tone though his illustriousness does not speak your language he understands a few words of it and so much the better broke in tony i hope he will understand me if i ask him in plain english what is his grievance against me the senator at this would have burst forth again but the count stepping between answered quickly his grievance against you is that you have been detected in secret correspondence with his daughter the most noble polixena cador the betrothed bride of this gentleman the most illustrious marquis anipolo and he waved a deferential hand at the frowning hidalgo of the cape and ruff sir said tony if that is the extent of my offence it lies with the young lady to set me free since by her own avowal but here he stopped short for to his surprise polixena shot a terrified glance at him sir interposed the count we are not accustomed in venice to take shelter behind a lady's reputation no more are we in salem retorted tony in a white heat i was merely about to remark that by the young lady's avowal she has never seen me before polixena's eyes signalled her gratitude and he felt he would have died to defend her the count translated his statement and presently pursued his illustriousness observes that in that case his daughter's misconduct has been all the more reprehensible her misconduct of what does he accuse her 
of sending you just now in the church of st mark's a letter which you were seen to read openly and thrust in your bosom the incident was witnessed by his illustriousness the marquis sanipolo who in consequence has already repudiated his unhappy bride tony stared contemptuously at the black marquis if his illustriousness is so lacking in gallantry as to repudiate a lady on so trivial a pretext it is he and not i who should be the object of her father's resentment that my dear young gentleman is hardly for you to decide your only excuse being your ignorance of our customs it is scarcely for you to advise us how to behave in matters of punctilio it seemed to tony as though the count were going over to his enemies and the thought sharpened his retort i had supposed said he that men of sense had much the same behaviour in all countries and that here as elsewhere a gentleman would be taken at his word i solemnly affirm that the letter i was seen to read reflects in no way on the honour of this young lady and has in fact nothing to do with what you suppose as he had himself no notion of what the letter was about this was as far as he dared commit himself there was another brief consultation in the opposing camp and the count then said we all know sir that a gentleman is obliged to meet certain enquiries by a denial but you have at your command the means of immediately clearing the lady will you show the letter to her father there was a perceptible pause during which tony while appearing to look straight before him managed to deflect an interrogatory glance toward polixena her reply was a faint negative motion accompanied by unmistakable signs of apprehension poor girl he thought she is in a worse case than i imagined and whatever happens i must keep her secret he turned to the senator with a deep bow i am not said he in the habit of showing my private correspondence to strangers the count interpreted these words and donna polixena's father dashing his hand on his hilt broke into furious invective while the marquis continued to nurse his outraged feelings aloof the count shook his head funereally alas sir it is as i feared this is not the first time that youth and propinquity have led to fatal imprudence but i need hardly i suppose point out the obligation incumbent upon you as a man of honour tony stared at him haughtily with a look which was meant for the marquis and what obligation is that to repair the wrong you have done in other words to marry the lady polixena at this burst into tears and tony said to himself why in heaven does she not bid me show the letter then he remembered that it had no superscription and that the words it contained supposing them to have been addressed to himself were hardly of a nature to disarm suspicion the sense of the girl's grave plight effaced all thought of his own risk but the count's last words struck him as so preposterous that he could not repress a smile i cannot flatter myself said he that the lady would welcome this solution the count's manner became increasingly ceremonious such modesty he said becomes your youth and inexperience but even if it were justified it would scarcely alter the case as it is always assumed in this country that a young lady wishes to marry the man whom her father has selected but i understood just now tony interposed that the gentleman yonder was in that enviable position so he was till circumstances obliged him to waive the privilege in your favour he does me too much honour 
but if a deep sense of my unworthiness obliges me to decline you are still interrupted the count labouring under a misapprehension your choice in the matter is no more to be consulted than the lady's not to put too fine a point on it it is necessary that you should marry her within the hour tony at this for all his spirit felt the blood run thin in his veins he looked in silence at the threatening visages between himself and the door stole a side glance at the high barred windows of the apartment and then turned to polixena who had fallen sobbing at her father's feet and if i refuse said he the count made a significant gesture i am not so foolish as to threaten a man of your mettle but perhaps you are unaware what the consequences would be to the lady polixena at this struggling to her feet addressed a few impassioned words to the count and her father but the latter put her aside with an obdurate gesture the count turned to tony the lady herself pleads for you at what cost you do not guess but as you see it is vain in an hour his illustriousness as chaplain will be here meanwhile his illustriousness consents to leave you in the custody of your betrothed he stepped back and the other gentlemen bowing with deep ceremony to tony stalked out one by one from the room tony heard the key turn in the lock and found himself alone with polixena section three the girl had sunk into a chair her face hidden a picture of shame and agony so moving was the sight that tony once again forgot his own extremity in the view of her distress he went and kneeled beside her drawing her hands from her face oh don't make me look at you she sobbed but it was on his bosom that she hid from his gaze he held her there a breathing space as he might have clasped a weeping child then she drew back and put him gently from her what humiliation she lamented do you think i blame you for what has happened alas was it not my foolish letter that brought you to this plight and how nobly you defended me how generous it was of you not to show the letter if my father knew i had written to the ambassador to save me from this dreadful marriage his anger against me would be even greater ah it was that you wrote for cried tony with unaccountable relief of course what else did you think but is it too late for the ambassador to save you from you a smile flashed through her tears alas yes she withdrew back and hid her face again as though overcome by a fresh wave of shame tony glanced about him if i could wrench a bar out of that window he muttered impossible the court is guarded you are a prisoner alas oh i must speak she sprang up and paced the room but indeed you can scarce think worse of me than you do already i think ill of you alas you must to be unwilling to marry the man my father has chosen for me such a beetle-browed lout it would be a burning shame if you married him ah uh, you come from a free country here a girl is allowed no choice it is infamous i say infamous no no i ought to have resigned myself like so many others resigned yourself to that brute impossible he has a dreadful name for violence his gondolier has told my little maid such tales of him but why do i talk of myself when it is of you i should be thinking of me poor child cried tony losing his head yes and how to save you for i can save you but every moment counts and yet what i have to say is so dreadful 
nothing from your lips could seem dreadful ah uh, if he had had your way of speaking well now at least you are free of him said tony a little wildly but at this she stood up and bent a grave look on him no i am not free she said but you are if you will do as i tell you tony at this felt a sudden dizziness as though from a mad flight through clouds and darkness he had dropped to safety again and the fall had stunned him what am i to do he said look away from me or i can never tell you he thought at first that this was a jest but her eyes commanded him and reluctantly he walked away and leaned in the embrasure of the window she stood in the middle of the room and as soon as his back was turned she began to speak in a quick monotonous voice as though she were reciting a lesson you must know that the marquis anipolo though a great noble is not a rich man true he has large estates but he is a desperate spendthrift and gambler and would sell his soul for a round sum of ready money if you turn round i shall not go on he wrangled horribly with my father over my dowry he wanted me to have more than either of my sisters though one married a procurator and the other a grandee of spain but my father is a gambler too oh such fortunes as are squandered over the arcade yonder and so and so don't turn i implore you oh do you begin to see my meaning she broke off sobbing and it took all his strength to keep his eyes from her go on he said will you not understand oh i would say anything to save you you don't know us venetians we're all to be bought for a price it is not only the brides who are marketable sometimes the husbands sell themselves too and they think you rich my father does and the others i don't know why unless you have shown your money too freely and the english are all rich are they not and oh oh do you understand oh i can't bear your eyes she dropped into a chair her head on her arms and tony in a flash was at her side my poor child my poor polyxena he cried and wept and clasped her you are rich are you not you would promise them a ransom she persisted to enable you to marry the marquis to enable you to escape from this place oh i hope i may never see your face again she fell to weeping once more and he drew away and paced the floor in a fever presently she sprang up with a fresh air of resolution and pointed to a clock against the wall the hour is nearly over it is quite true that my father has gone to fetch his chaplain oh i implore you be warned by me there is no other way of escape and if i do as you say you are safe you are free i stake my life on it and you you are married to that villain but i shall have saved you tell me your name that i may say it to myself when i am alone my name is anthony but you must not marry that fellow you forgive me anthony you don't think too badly of me i say you must not marry that fellow she laid a trembling hand on his arm time presses she adjured him and i warn you there is no other way for a moment he had a vision of his mother sitting very upright on a sunday evening reading dr tillotson's sermons in the best parlour at salem then he swung round on the girl and caught both her hands in his yes there is he cried if you are willing polyxena let the priest come she shrank back from him white and radiant oh hush be silent she said 
i am no noble marquis and have no great estates he cried my father is a plain india merchant in the colony of massachusetts but if you oh hush i say i don't know what your long words mean but i bless you bless you bless you on my knees and she knelt before him and fell to kissing his hands he drew her up to his breast and held her there you are willing polyxena he said no no she broke from him with outstretched hands i am not willing you mistake me i must marry the marquis i tell you on my money he taunted her and her burning blush rebuked him yes on your money she said sadly why because much as you hate him you hate me still more she was silent if you hate me why do you sacrifice yourself for me he persisted you torture me and i tell you the hour is past let it pass i'll not accept your sacrifice i will not lift a finger to help another man to marry you oh madman madman she murmured tony with crossed arms faced her squarely and she leaned against the wall a few feet off from him her breast throbbed under its lace and falbalas and her eyes swam with terror and entreaty polyxena i love you he cried a blush swept over her throat and bosom bathing her in light to the verge of her troubled brows i love you i love you he repeated and now she was on his breast again and all their youth was in their lips but her embrace was as fleeting as a bird's poise and before he knew it he clasped empty air and half the room was between them she was holding up a little coral charm and laughing i took it from your fob she said it is of no value is it and i shall not get any of the money you know she continued to laugh strangely and the rouge burned like fire in her ashen face what are you talking of he said they never give me anything but the clothes i wear and i shall never see you again anthony she gave him a dreadful look oh my poor boy my poor love i love you i love you polyxena he thought she had turned light-headed and advanced to her with soothing words but she held him quietly at arm's length and as he gazed he read the truth in her face he fell back from her and a sob broke from him as he bowed his head on his hands only for god's sake have the money ready or there may be foul play here she said as she spoke there was a great tramping of steps outside and a burst of voices on the threshold it is all a lie she gasped out about my marriage and the marquis and the ambassador and the senator but not oh not about your danger in this place or about my love she breathed to him and as the key rattled in the door she laid her lips on his brow the key rattled and the door swung open but the black cassock gentleman who stepped in though a priest indeed was no votary of idolatrous rites but that sound orthodox divine the reverend ozias mounts looking very much perturbed at his surroundings and very much on the alert for the scarlet woman he was supported to his evident relief by the captain of the hepzibah b and the procession was closed by an escort of stern-looking fellows in cocked hats and small swords who led between them tony's late friends the magnificos now as sorry a looking company as the law ever landed in her net the captain strode briskly into the room uttering a grunt of satisfaction as he clapped eyes on tony so mr bracknell said he you have been seeing the carnival with this pack of mummers have you 
and this is where your pleasuring has landed you hm a pretty establishment and a pretty lady at the head of it he glanced about the apartment and doffed his hat with mock ceremony to polixena who faced him like a princess why my girl said he amicably i think i saw you this morning in the square on the arm of the pantaloon yonder and as for that captain spavent and he pointed a derisive finger at the marquis i've watched him drive his bully's trade under the arcade ever since i first dropped anchor in these waters well well he continued his indignation subsiding all's fair in carnival i suppose but this gentleman here is under sailing orders and i fear we must break up your little party at this tony saw count rialto step forward looking very small and explanatory and uncovering obsequiously to the captain i can assure you sir said the count in his best english that this incident is the result of an unfortunate misunderstanding and if you will oblige us by dismissing these myrmidons any of my friends here will be happy to offer satisfaction to mr bracknell and his companions mr mount shrank visibly at this and the captain burst into a loud guffaw satisfaction says he why my cock that's very handsome of you considering the ropes at your throats but will not take advantage of your generosity for i fear mr bracknell has already trespassed on it too long you pack of galley-slaves you he spluttered suddenly decoying young innocence with that devil's bait of yours his eye fell on polixena and his voice softened unaccountably ah well we must all see the carnival once i suppose he said all's well that ends well as the fellow says in the play and now if you please mr bracknell if you'll take the reverend gentleman's arm there we'll bid adieu to our hospitable entertainers and right about face for the hepzibah end of chapter ten end of the descent of man and other stories by edith wharton read by nicholas clifford